Front row, right here. Or you can sit behind a pillar, wherever. It's a great space. A um, couple of things. Uh, first, we're going to be taking a break. For those of you that have been coming for the past six weeks, you know that we've been in the middle of a series called Redeemed, which is a study of the book of Ruth. We've been kind of going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, movement by movement through the book of Ruth. And we finished chapter two last week, uh, six weeks, kind of looking at those first. And we're going to take a, a little bit of a hiatus, a little bit of a break, and, and focus on something that's happening right here and right now in the midst of life of our community. And then we're going to pick up our study of Ruth in a, in a little bit. And the, the kind of the advantage of doing that is that you know, Ruth kind of plays itself out in these great narrative movements. And so we're going to pick up right where we left off and really not miss a beat. But it's, just, it's important to do this because this time is a really important time in the life of our church. So right now, as we kind of close out 2013 and think about 2014, we're really stepping into the middle of a really significant time in the life of our young community. We're coming up on, on, our, on our second birthday, if you will. November 21st-ish was, ish, was our, uh, you know, who's counting, was our um, kind of birthday as a church, really birthed as this sort of, um, organized movement, if you will, of people that want to follow Christ together. And as we think about two years, it's been kind of a remarkable journey. And not only are we going to pause and sort of celebrate God's faithfulness, but we're going to be thinking about what God is kind of calling us to, both as a people and as a church, into the future. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks, five weeks or so, is really explore who we are and who God is calling us to be and what that looks like for you and your family, what that looks like for this church, and what that looks like for us together. Because really now is a really significant time. And so we're going to be stepping into a series that I've just entitled Now is a Time because we're at this sort of in, incredibly important hinge point in our sort of life together. And I'm going to be explaining that as we go. But it is a really significant time. We moved into this space about a year ago, and we knew that this was going to be a really interesting kind of growth dynamic year for us. And sure enough, we're kind of, and I'll explain to this, you this in a little bit, but we're coming up on this sort of big decision-making time for our, our church. Our leaders are, are contemplating big decisions for our future, how that will shape us and what that means. I'm going to be sharing some of those things with us as we go. We're going to be talking a lot about our worship a lot about our resources, a lot about giving, and a lot about what it means to really buy into the gathering, the ecclesia that is the church, right? That's the Greek word for church, which really just means the assembly. What does that mean for all of us? So we're going to be taking a look at that and saying now is the time. Now, I've kind of come up with three basic principles that are going to um, kind of be overarching themes for these five weeks. And I'm going to be sharing them each week. We're not necessarily going to teach into them all the time, but I want to put them out there because I think it's a really important kind of thing for, for you to understand what is pushing me as I begin to preach through these, this kind of new series and this Lord, sort of look at who we are and who we were and who God is calling us to be. And so really I'm kind of framing this as now is the time. And not just for our church, but now is the time for you. Now is the time for me. Now is the time for your family to begin to think about a few things. And those three principles are this. Now is the time to take hold of your financial life. All right? Sometimes we begin to look at our financial world and we say, if I can just get a few more things in order, if I can just get that job or save a little bit more money, or if I just turn 30 or 40 or 50 or whatever it is, or if I just get my, my retirement world, you know, it's, it's always sort of down the road a little bit. And you wake up one day and you're, you know, you're 10 years down the road and you're still 
over here and you're still wrestling with debt or you're still struggling with this or waiting for that next big thing or whatever it is. I deeply believe that now is the time for us to think about and grab hold of our financial lives. All right, so we're going to be talking about that through this series. Now is also the time to redefine your biblical priorities. So we kind of biblically redefine what's important to you. Redefine your biblical priorities. What's important in my life? My relationships, my marriage, my kids, my job, my work, my relationship with Christ. How do I biblically define what's important in my life? And I think a lot of times we get caught up in these seasons in our life and some things that maybe aren't quite as important take huge precedence of importance in our life and we forego and forget about the things that really matter, mainly our own relationship with Christ and the passion and fervor and zeal that we're called to live for him with. So now is the time, right now, not down the road, not in 2014 or beyond, but right now is the time to to sort of biblically redefine your priorities, to stop and say, God, what do you have for me? And how can I shape my life around what you have for me instead of what I desire for myself? So to grab hold of your financial life, to biblically redefine your priorities, and to change, the final one is to change the way you think and live. I think oftentimes we feel like we are sort of just pressed into this thing, and it's the way it's always going to be, and that's just sort of how it is. This is what I'm sort of resolved to. This is just my plight, my life, my thinking, my things. But I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I believe the Bible very strongly teaches that we can alter the way that we think and the way that we live by redefining these priorities and seizing moments that say, God, I I want my life to be yours. So as we think about this sort of season, those are the things that we're going to be talking into. We're going to be really teaching into those ideas of, of grabbing those moments. Now is a time, not only as a church, but as individuals to say, God, you get the first and the best of my whole life. And I want to redefine my priorities to reflect that. As I think about 2014, I really have this sort of one overarching goal for our church. Um, this, and, and really it's this. I want to cultivate a culture of biblically based, generous living that involves our lives and our hearts and our resources. Now, it's not saying that we don't already do that or, or, or you don't do that well, but I want it to be what we're known for. I want this church to be known as a biblically-based culture of generous living where our lives are given away to Christ, given away to each other, and given away to the world. That we change the way that we think and we live, and we begin to just sort of ooze generosity, if you will, that doesn't just happen in this building but flows out at your home with your neighbors, with your coworkers, and your desire to know and experience all that Christ has for you. I want that to be our culture. I want it to be what drives us. So as we begin to look at what we're going to talk about today, that's my overarching kind of principle. It doesn't mean that I don't have other goals for our church, but I want us to be defined by that culture of generous living. And it doesn't just include finances, but it's really all about who I am. God, I want to give my life away. I want to be someone that says, you get all of me, and I give it first and foremost to you, I surrender it, and then I give it away to the people around me, to my family, to the world. And my my financial life is just another reflection. My worship life is just another reflection of me surrendering and giving my life to you. So as we step into this sort of now is the time series, those are the things that are framing this in my mind, right? To create this culture of biblically based generous living that involves our hearts and our lives and our resources, because now is the time, not only for us as a church, but as for you as individuals and as families to redefine those priorities in your life, to grab hold of your financial life and to say, you know what, God, you get all of me because I'm going to change the way that I think and live. So this is sort of a little bit of, of, of a pause in in terms of where we're going. And we're going to do it in a really kind of interesting fashion over the next few weeks. And we're going to talk very specifically about things, and I'm going to be carving out some things that I 
kind of going to share with you about where we are and where we're going, and I'm going to tell you how I think that those can transfer to our lives and how we live. So um, we're going to be in the book of Romans chapter 12 today, if you've got it. Uh, it'll be a few minutes before we get there, so take your time finding it. But I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll kind of dive into it as we go. I've got some other things I'll share after we pray, but let's, uh, let's just, if you want to find that one in your, your Bible, you can. Romans chapter 12, we'll be in 9 and 13. So let's take a moment, let's go before the Lord, and then we'll, we'll sort of dive into what we're going to do this morning. Lord, I thank you so much for your faithfulness. I thank you that even when we are faithless, you are faithful. I thank you, God, that um, you are bigger than all that I know and can see and can imagine. I thank you, Father, that you are the perfect Father. And God, even when we make mistakes, you are so faithful. So, Lord, I pray that this morning as we think about our future, as we dream about our future, and then we think about our now, what happens now in my life. That, God, you would convict us, not only as a church, but as individuals, as families, God, to, to think differently about what you have for us and what it means to surrender our lives, to give our lives away. Um, Lord, you are the author and perfecter of our faith. And so, God, I pray that you would teach us this morning. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to teach you something this morning, to push your heart and your mind. Just ask him to speak to your soul. Take a moment and pray for those people around you or beside you. I mention this every single week. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Pray that God would move in them. He would reveal himself to them. God, we ask that you would be glorified in, in every single thing that we do. God, I pray that you would speak through your word to our hearts this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' holy and perfect name. Amen. So I thought long and hard about how much history to share about our story, and I decided just to not share any. So here's the thing is that <laughs> it was just a time thing. But I thought about really casting, uh, sharing our story, where we came from, how our church was kind of planted, all that stuff you could actually find on the website. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bypass that to get with the here and now. And I want to say a word about where we're going. All right, because part of what we're going to be exploring over the next five weeks is really under the, under the kind of guise of giving, living, living biblically generous. And if you're here for the first time, you're going, oh my goodness, the first time I show up, the church is going to talk about money and they want my wallet and I'm never coming back because we're all jaded that way, right? So I want to share a word about money for a minute because that's not really what this is about. And I want you to hear me carefully. This church does not want one single dollar of yours, period. We don't want your money. I believe that God will provide for us with or without you. Okay, I deeply believe that God is that faithful. So this is not about trying to make you feel like you need to give to the church or we're going to collapse and our kids are going to go homeless. Right? That is not what is happening here. What is happening here is that I believe that God speaks directly to our hearts about what's important to us. What we want as a church is for you to surrender your life to Christ first and foremost. Nothing else matters to me. Nothing else matters to our leaders. We want every person that walks in this room to have a radical encounter with Christ that will forever change their lives. Because I believe that having a radical encounter with Christ that forever changes your life will change the way that you live. It will change the way that you think about your things. It will change the way you think about your relationships, and it will change the way you think about your dollars. If those dollars ever make it back to this place, it doesn't matter to me. God will 
provide. So hear me say this. We are not sitting here talking about your money. We're not going to pass the plate two or three times. I've been church. I work for a church that had four offerings, right? So we are not going to do that. That's true. College Station, we pass that plate, pass it again, pass it again. Depending on how good the word was, it went around one more time. That's our goal is to play ever going around, right? Based on how good the preacher is. So here's the thing. We don't really want your money, so don't hear that. Don't hear that. But what we are going to talk about is giving and living generously. Because the truth is, is that God wants your life. The church doesn't want your life. God wants your life. He wants you to surrender it to him. But we're going to be kind of looking at these five weeks in terms of that idea of giving. And I think that for a lot of us, that's going to involve our resources and our dollars. Because those are the things that we hold on so tightly to because we're so petrified of actually giving them over to the Lord. And I'm going to share a few principles with you this morning that will sort of, I think, shed a little light on that. But before we get there, I want to tell you what we're going to do over the next five weeks. I'm going to do something I did a couple of years ago when we first launched our community. And I'm going to share each week that we do this. I'm going to share with you three things. I'm going to share with you a vision point for 2014, something that's important to our church that we're going to be trying to live into in 2014. I'm going to share with you an action point, which is something that I believe the church needs from you, that I'm asking from you as your pastor. And then I'm going to share with you a teaching point, and we're going to look at what the Bible says about those kind of things. And I think by doing that, it'll break down this understanding of going, man, what is Treb casting vision for for 2014? What does my church need from me, and what does the Bible say about how that works? And about midway through the series, I'll have all those things available on paper so you can hang on to them and look at them. But um, I want to kind of let a few unfold before we we dive in there. But I want to start off with a vision point for 2014. There's really four of them, okay? But I'm going to share one a week, and we're going to skip a week in the middle. But I want to share one a week um, because I think it's really important that you say, where are we going as a church? What's important to us? What matters? Our first vision point for 2014 is this. We're going to make a commitment to centralize and decentralize community. Now, let me explain that for a minute. When I talk about centralizing community, I'm talking about this moment here, where we gather as a church. Now, you may remember that about a year ago, a couple of weeks ago, so a full year and a couple of weeks, we moved into this space. Uh, In the middle of the summer of 2012, we began to raise money, and we began to identify that God was calling us into this really this neighborhood, this community, and we begin to raise money, and we, we, the Lord opened up the doors for this place, and we raised almost $70,000 with our little community to actually retrofit and change and create a space that we could, could use as a launching point to step out into the world around us. And I told you at that point in time that we signed a two-year lease with the uh, owner of this building with a third-year option if we wanted to exercise it. And we knew that 2013 was going to be a real pivotal year for us. We were flexing a little bit financially. We knew that it was going to be a big step to be in here. And we knew that in order to really move forward as a church, we were going to outgrow this space eventually. So here we are a year into it, knowing that our lease runs out in July. And we've got to make some decisions. Our leaders have to make some really important decisions about whether we're going to renew that lease or whether we're going to begin to look at other things. And so we've actually put a team together of folks that are looking into every other option. But just so you know, our heartbeat is really to stay here in this community. We really feel this sort of call, Broadway extension to May, 63rd, 36, like heartbeat of what we consider our kind of demographic slash kind of area of the city, and we love it. But we've got to make some hard decisions, and 2014 is going to look a little bit different. This place is not cheap, and so we leveraged intentionally our financial world as a church to make sure that we could be really visible for a period of time in our life. Does that mean we're going to move from here? Well, we, we're not totally sure. Does it mean that God is going to open something new for us? Uh, we're not sure about that either, but we're praying, for the, praying through that and looking at that. 
See, the reality is we can only put 120 people in this room. And we're pretty full right now. I mean, there's a few empty seats, but, and our kids are all downstairs. If you brought our kids up here, we're probably sitting on 125 folks. If everybody shows up at the same time, then we need multiple services. But we're so small, we don't need multiple services. You know what I'm saying? Like, we need to be together. We need to be worshiping together. We need to be knowing everybody's faces. We're not massive. We don't want to necessarily be massive, but we're too small to be engaging in two services. But our venue is too small to kind of let us do that in a really big way. So when you look around you right now, this is as big as we will get. Right? And while that's kind of nice for some, and we have all these new members, and they're like, man, we love it, the fact that it's small. That's great. But we can't self-sustain this community staying at like 120. We need to get up to about 175 or 200 people and be able to really thrive and live into our mission. So we've got a commitment to centralize our community in a different way. Does that mean we might have to move locations within our context of where we believe God is calling us to? It does. We're looking at public schools. We're looking at other venues. We're looking at, you know, whatever. So if you're sitting on a giant kind of piece of property and it's a building or whatever, and God is calling you to give that to us. (laughs) So this is where we're looking, right? That's kind of the idea. And the reason I say that tongue-in-cheek is because we don't really know we're trusting the Lord. But there's a chance that 2014 is going to look a little bit different for us. Because we do have a desire to just reach our neighbors with the gospel of Christ. We do have a desire to, to grow in a healthy way of making disciples. And not growth for growth's sake at all. Not growth so that we can put billboards and, and things like that on TV shows. But growth so that we can see people come to know Christ, develop authentic community, and do it in a centralized way. Part of the joy of living in a small community is seeing everybody. And if we have to go to multiple services, we miss deep windows of that. So we've intentionally, after the summer, not gone to two services, right, if you've noticed, to try and cram everybody in here. And by, but by doing that, we realize that we're limiting our growth and our ability to reach new people. So that being said, we're, we're going to focus on that. So we've got a team together that's looking into that, and we're going to be talking about that in the near future. So that's 2014. We've got to make some big decisions about our lease and our movement and where we're going. And, and here's the thing is that we don't want to spend our resources on stuff. We have no desire to do that. Um, there is a necessary kind of part to that, but that's not our goal. We're not going to leverage ourselves to massive amounts of debt to, you know, do whatever. But we are going to look and say, God, where can we all gather together? How can we reach new people? The second part of that, and that's centralizing. The second part of that is our commitment to decentralized community. We have a huge heartbeat to be a community of communities. Like, I deeply believe that the Christian life is meant to be lived in community. This is not in community. This is in large gathering. Even though it's only 110 folks, it is a large gathering. You're, you, don't, you aren't known and you don't know people in this context. Christian life was meant to be lived in a place where I, I know, I'm known and I get known. Or I know people and I get known. Like, my heart is revealed. Small group community. It happens in lots of different ways. It happens with a couple of couples getting together. It happens with a men's Bible study or with our life group. We're going to be committed to changing and adapting and resurrecting and, and, and making life happen for people in community. And I'm gonna, you're going to hear me over and over again talk about the importance of finding ways to do that. Now, we realize when we launch, launch new life groups this fall, not all those are going to work. Part of it is realizing that, hey, it's not a failure if it just doesn't work with time. We just try again with something else. I want to challenge the people in this community to get involved in a way that says, I want to be known. Now, the reason this is an important vision point for 2014 is because almost every person that walks in here, that I go have coffee with or that I go spend time with, says, Trevor, I really want to know how I can get involved. And most of the time what we mean by getting involved is I want something to do. So I want to plug in a coffee pot, I want to put out a sign, I want to do whatever, I'll straighten up the chairs. Like I need something to do to feel like my role here is important. And, and while that is true, right, I need you to plug in coffee pots and I need you to put out signs. That's not really what I want. My idea of involvement is that you get exposed to other people's lives. 
I would rather you be involved in a life group, in a community where you bear your heart than to come plug in our coffee pot. Although we want to plug in coffee pot because it makes you feel like you have an important place. The most important place you can have is in the heartbeat of somebody else. So my challenge for 2014 is to decentralize what we do while we're gathering and challenge everybody in this community to get involved in intentional relationships with each other. So you're going to be hearing a lot about that. And I know for a lot of us that doesn't work. My schedule, my time, my things, my life. I I don't really want to know other people. Right? But here's the deal. God calls us to these things. So we're going to be kind of living in that. So here's the deal. Our first vision point for 2014 is this. We're going to be concentrating on centralizing, thinking about our worship space and how we launch out from here, and decentralizing how we live in community um, together. That's one of the things we're going to be kind of committed to. So what do you need from me? What's the action point? Well, here's the deal, and I'm not going to say this lightly. The action point is something that, that I take very seriously, that I feel like, very honestly, very few of us truly engage with. All right? And that's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to begin to pray for your church and your leaders and your pastor. We've got huge decisions to make. And I deeply believe that most of us may cover those things in passing, but very few of us have actually committed to pray for our church. I mean, the kind of deal where you're praying, you're on the city and you're looking at pictures and you're praying over people, or you're praying consistently that God would use this church to impact the world or that you would open up avenues in people's lives or whatever it is, but consistently and deeply praying. And I don't say it lightly, like before you go to bed, God, please bless the Vine Community Church. I don't really care about that. What I want you to do is fall on your knees and pray That God is glorified through everything that we do and we engage in. And if you're not going to pray for our church, pray for the church. Get involved in saying, God, I want to see your kingdom come. God, I want to pray for the church right on my block. Instead of being cynical and kind of uh, judgmental about what they do or what they don't do, I want to pray that you are made famous in that place. A lot of times we just want to engage in our own self. But we got churches up and down our streets that we don't pray for. And these are kingdom-minded churches. Maybe they sing songs a little differently. Maybe they have a few different theological views. But they're not bankrupt, right? Be it about praying for the kingdom of God. And as you're doing it, pray that God would give us wisdom. Because it is very easy at this young stage in our life to get sidetracked by what we think might be important. Because we want to honestly be seen and be known and draw people. It's really enticing to do that. In fact, you read all the church planning books and it's all about marketing and all about this and branding and logos and getting out there and multiple things. And we're just, it's just not in our heartbeat. Don and I more than once have come together and gone, these things just aren't us. But it's easy to be enticed that way. So pray that what God is doing in our leaders, what God is doing in our church is that authentic movement. And I'm going to ask you to take it seriously and figure out a way to take it seriously. Write those things down where you sit. Make a prayer list. Go through the city. Pray for people. But I'm going to ask you to commit to that. We're going to make a commitment to centralize and decentralize community in a really interesting kind of unique way that we'll see what God does. And I'm asking you to pray. And I'm not saying it lightly. I'm not saying, oh, pray, and then you look at me like, oh, I'll pray for you, and then you, of course, you never pray. People do that all the time, right? You see them at Starbucks, you're like, hey, will you pray for my grandmother? Oh, sure, I'll pray, and then we just never do it. It's more of a greeting than it is anything else. I'm asking you with deep passion to pray for this church, for your leaders, and for your pastor to say, God, I want you to be known here. So then what becomes our teaching point? Well, we're going to be in the book of Romans chapter 12, and I want you to think a little bit differently about this. Because here's the thing, when we talk about living biblically-based, generous lives that involve our hearts and our lives and our resources, oftentimes we gravitate towards giving in response to stuff. But what I think Paul's shaping as he talks to the Romans about kind of living this kind of life is that he's really talking about love. 
And I want to give you a different picture of giving um, this morning as we open those Bibles up to Romans chapter 12. Because I deeply believe that most of us are turned off by the idea of generous living and giving because, well, I'll get into it in a second. But we're turned off by it. Right? But what I think God calls us to is something so much different. It's not driven by the sort of sacrifice and the begrudging moment of saying, well, I've got to give my things away or whatever. Or if I really give my life to Christ, he's going to call me to move somewhere. Or I can't live in my house or I have to get rid of my pool or whatever it is. But that God is calling us to think differently about what it means to love as a community. This is what Paul's teaching in the book of Romans. He's actually teaching this idea that a generous life is driven by how we love. How we love each other, how we devote ourselves to each other, how we give our lives away. Now, here's the overarching principle that I want you to understand. And it's one that I've said multiple times and will continue to say until it burns its way into your soul, okay? I've talked about this a ton. I'm going to continue to do it because I think this is revolutionary. And if you listen to it, it will change you forever. But there's a biblical principle at play that kind of guides this whole concept of living generously and redefining our priorities and and our financial world and all those kind of things. And that's this understanding, that my life and everything I have belongs to the Lord. So here's the deal. This big principle that Scripture teaches is this. When I surrender my life to Christ, everything that I am and everything that I have, in quotes, is really the Lord's. We've actually been talking about it with Ruth. It's the way landowners saw their property. It's the reason gleaning was a part of the economic of the Old Testament. It's because it all belonged to the Lord. The harvest was God. The land was God's. And they lived in a way that said, this does not belong to me. The year of Jubilee would happen and they'd have to give it all back because it was all God's. My life and my stuff, my things, my relationships belong to the Lord. If you really believe this, right... Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Paul's saying, my life is no longer mine, but it belongs to Jesus. Now, if we truly understand this principle, it will change the way that we think about everything. If I truly believe that my house, my car, my wife, my husband, my kids, my job, everything that I would claim as my own belongs to the Lord, then it will change the way that I think and live. Because no longer am I bent on holding on to it, so afraid that I'm going to lose it. But if it's God's, I become a steward of giving it away. Because it doesn't belong to me anyway. And I, do, and I can do it with my family. I can do it with my life. I can do it with my things. God, I just joyfully get to steward what you've blessed me with. All right? And it doesn't matter how much or how little, because it's all God's anyway. This principle alone will revolutionize your life. However, most of us don't agree with it, and we don't want to believe it. But it doesn't make it less true. Okay? My life and my stuff belong to the Lord. So Paul's teaching this church in Rome. Now, Rome was a really interesting place to be a Christian. right? These were mostly non-Jewish Christians, although there were some that were gathered in there. But it was a pretty hostile place to be. Right? The Romans hated the Christians because the Christians believed that there was only one God, and the Romans were okay with that. They just wanted you to believe in all the other gods as well. It was a hostile place to be a Christian. And so Paul's teaching about this sort of importance of what life looks like together. But instead of saying, look, you know, here's the deal. You have to do this. It's done by discipline and done by commitment and sacrifice and those kind of things. He says, living in community is done by love. It's changed by the way that you think about each other and the way you think about Christ. So listen to these verses in Romans chapter 12. We're just going to look at 9 through 13 this morning. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, honor one another above yourself. 
Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need and practice hospitality. So here's what Paul says. If we're going to live as the church in this hostile place, we're going to have to live in a holy and a totally different way. And that is not going to be driven by the rules that I set up for you, by the things that I tell you you have to do. But instead, it's going to be driven by love. It's going to be driven by seeing and living in the world differently. It's going to be driven by understanding that Christ has done something different for us, and therefore we are called to live differently with each other. This really is the call of what it means to live as the church and give our lives away. Giving your life away isn't something we do begrudgingly because, well, we have to. We're afraid God's going to be mad. But it's because we get to because that's what Christ did for us. Giving our resources and our life and our relationships is a reflection of stewarding what God says is already his anyway. And Paul says, when we live with the concept of love at the center, and not that sort of like hug it out, everything's happy, we hold hands and skip down the street kind of love, but love that says, I care more about Christ in you than I do about me. Everything changes for the church. And this is what Paul says. Listen to these words. He says, listen, love is sincere. Uh, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourself. You know, that idea of devotion is one of commitment. Brotherly love. Any of you have siblings, probably? I've got a brother. My mom's here. She knows that. So um, I've got a brother. I love him like crazy. Sometimes I want to punch him right in the face, right? We have fought and fought and fought, and we have hugged and hugged and hugged. But I am devoted to him, Right? No matter what goes wrong, I'll stand there. I'll do whatever. Why? Because we have something deeper connected, right? We walk through tragedy together. We walk through struggle together. We walk through difficulty together. So no matter how difficult life may get or the tensions between us, I am devoted to him because we are held together by something bigger. What Paul is saying is like, look, as followers of Christ... We're not held together by a family bond because we have the same mother or father, but we're held together by this unity that says we have the same eternal father. So I will be devoted to you even when life is hard and when I don't want to be. Living as a church family doesn't mean that everything is great. It doesn't mean that we're all going to vote the same way and think the same way and act the same way. And it doesn't mean that people in this place aren't going to drive you absolutely crazy. It happens. But it means that I will be devoted to you. I will be committed to you, even in the midst of some of those struggles. Why? Because we are connected by the same thing, and that's a common love for Christ. Love what is evil, or love what is good, hate what is evil, cling to love. Paul says, be devoted to one another in a brotherly, in a phileo type of love that says, this is about something bigger. It's not about my one theological stance on this one thing that I put my stake in, and if you don't agree with me, then I can't get along with you. No, it's about saying we are connected by a God who gave his life for us, and therefore when we disagree, I love you even more, even when it's hard. He said, be committed to each other in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. That picture of honoring one another really just means put other people before you. Right? And as a church, this should sound like something that comes really easy. Like, yeah, okay, I can do that. You go before me. Now you can go before me as long as it's convenient. But the problem with the church is, is that we don't put people in front of ourselves. Instead, the church is about me and about what you have to offer me and about what programs you do and where I sit and why is a donut station moved. It becomes one of those things that say, this is my comfortable surroundings. Don't change them. We don't think about the guy that just kind of slunk into the back and is sitting in the back corner with his hat pulled down because he had a wrecked weekend and he showed up in here looking for something real. 
We're more frustrated that we started two minutes late or that this is happening or the kids are being loud than we are about that. I tell the story to all of our new member classes, and I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm going to mention it here, and some of you heard it like a dozen times, but it's really important. We were at Will Rogers a couple of years ago. I remember I was sitting there preaching, and this kid in the, comes in the back of the room. We had, we're, I'm preaching, so we've already 40 minutes into whatever worship we were having that day. And this kid, I say kid because that's what he was. He was in his late teens, maybe early 20s, comes in the back of the room, and I can tell that he doesn't belong just because he's acting like this is the first time he's ever been in here with us. And he's standing in the back by the, well, at the time, the bar slash uh, donut station, whatever, you know. And, and he's standing back there. And everybody else is pressed down front. And I catch a glimpse out of the eye. One of our, our leaders uh, saw this kid come in, too, and he looks out kind of at the corner of his eye, and you can see him standing back there, and the kid's got his head down. And... and I don't really remember what I was preaching on, but all I kept thinking about was something's going on with this, this kid. And so as I'm teaching, I see this guy get up from his table and slowly kind of sneak his way around all the way to the back of the room, one step at a time. It took about five minutes to finally inch his way over there to where they were standing side by side, side by side. The kid still got his head down, and, and I'm still teaching on, on whatever, and I'm just fascinated with what's happening. So oftentimes I'm teaching, I'm thinking about other things, right? So fascinated with what's happening. And I think to myself... Something's getting ready to go down. Like, I just knew it. I could see it. And this gentleman turns to this kid, and I could see him kind of whisper something in his ear, kind of put his arm on his shoulder a little bit. I mean, and then all of a sudden in this movement, this kid just turns into his shoulder and just starts sobbing. I mean, just heaving. So in that kind of like moment, we've got this, this guy sort of hugging this kid who's just sobbing, sobbing, sobbing. Well, now I'm fascinated with whatever's happening. Well, we go on, and we close in worship, and I get to the end. I try and trace, chase this kid down. I start talking to him a little bit. And it turns out, long story really short, that God had just, he had had a horrible life, really. I mean, really. And it was at the end of his rope, was done, was just done. Was walking down the street, saw our son out, and just decided to stick his head in at a last resort, really realizing how fully broken he was and that he was empty and unloved. Stood in the back, and I said, as I talked to our leader later, I said, what did you say to that guy? And he said, I just looked at him and said, I'm so glad you're here. And he just broke. And so this kid was telling me that nobody ever had really welcomed him like that. Now, I, I don't know what happened. I'll just tell you the story ended really great. And it's, you know, but I, I don't know. Maybe it was just that moment. But here's the thing. We become so concerned with the other things that are about church that we forget that this place is made up of lives who we are called to honor. And church becomes a place of convenience. Oh, yeah, I'll go if it's convenient. What if worship and gathering and worship wasn't about you? What if it was about being present for somebody else that might come in this place and need you to love them? See, we walk into our churches saying, sing songs that I like. Let me walk out of here and judge whether or not worship was good this morning. Let me find some place that entertains me with their stories and your preaching. What if worship was really about saying, God, I want to be a part of something where you use me? See, I believe worship is a both and. God wants you here in his presence, and he wants you all of your heart, but he also wants to use you in this place. Honor one another above yourselves. Part of giving our lives away is love. So listen to what Paul goes on and continues to say. He says, honor one another above your love. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. So Paul says, don't mistake being devoted to one another and honoring one another. Don't mistake that for becoming spiritually complacent. See, a lot of times the church thinks that it's got to go peace at all costs. So we so don't want to disagree that we opt for peace and we lose our drive and passion. The single goal of the church is to surrender our life to Christ, period. That's it. 
and to be passionate about doing that. God, you are everything, and you get everything, and our goal is that you are glorified. But sometimes, peace and honoring and devotion, well, that takes precedence over that first movement of spiritual passion and zeal. Sometimes being passionate about the Lord means that we stand up for things that are difficult to hear. Sometimes as a church, we have to say things that are not going to please everybody. I have had, I can't tell you how many people have at one point in time walked in our doors over the past two years, spent some time with us, and then quit coming. And that told me, in all honesty, and I'm really grateful, we just don't line up with what this church teaches. And you know what? That's okay. And I tell them, man, that is okay. Because here's the thing. Do we want to strain down and water down what we teach and talk about over the fear of losing peace or losing someone? No, we can't. We can't sacrifice our spiritual passion and zeal for the sake of pleasing the world. But here's the thing. Sometimes our spiritual fervor and excitement gets misguided. Instead of being kind of focused on Christ and His glory, we focus it on ourselves as a church. We get passionate, excited about programs and buildings and stuff and putting effort into us so that we can lift ourselves up and say, look what we're doing as a church. Come be a part of what we're doing. We compete with other churches and try and out-sexy them with our coolness. And that is a term. Out-sexy. It is. I declare it. You guys ever see The Office? You remember, have you ever watched the show The Office? I probably shouldn't say it, but here's the deal. You remember Creed, Michael is having financial troubles, and Creed goes, you need to declare bankruptcy. So Michael walks out of his office, he goes, I declare bankruptcy! And then Oscar goes, you can't just declare it, right? I mean, you actually got to do it. So here's the thing, I declare that as a term. So here's the deal. The cool thing about this church is that we are never going to out-sexy anybody. Don and I at the helm, this thing does not get that cool, right? We have peaked. So here's the deal. But churches do that, right? And we fall into that trap sometimes of trying to become something we're not, to try and draw the masses. Look, here's the deal. There's nothing wrong with trying to be things for people and draw them in. And, and these, you know. But the truth is, is that we don't want to sacrifice our spiritual fervor and passion along the way. Giving our life away means, Jesus, you get, you get it. It's yours. All of this is you. And if we ever become more passionate about programs and buildings and budgets and things than we do about Jesus, then I want out. We become spiritually bankrupt, and I want out. So Paul says, don't mistake loving each other and lose your spiritual fervor. Don't mistake that program driven for the idea of saying, be passionate about Jesus. And then finally, and I'll wrap it up with this. Paul says this. He says, be, oh, I have two things. I'll wrap it up with these things. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Now, I would spend all day talking about these. If, if you want to revolutionize the way that you think and live, find a way to live into verse 12. Joyful in hope, patient in affliction, or suffering or pain, right? Faithful in prayer. I bet that most of us don't live in that category. We live in discouragement, and we don't live in patient when we don't live patient when things are hard. We want out, and we want out now. And we're very well, faithful in prayer is not something that we live. If, if we could find a way to live, twelve man, powerful stuff. But I want to get to thirteen. Listen to this: thirteen. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Part of giving our life away is this understanding of sharing. And sharing for us, as we've been trained from the very sort of ground floor of kindergarten, is about giving things, right? If, I, if you are hungry and I have two crackers, I will give you one of my crackers. Therefore, I have a cracker and you have a cracker. We are now sharing. We think that when it comes to the church. When we think about sharing with those in need, what we're thinking about is sharing my things. I've got plenty of clothes. I've outgrown the clothes I have, so I'll give the clothes I don't fit me anymore, and I'll give them to somebody else, and therefore I've shared my things. 
Somebody doesn't have food, I have extra food, I'm going to give them my extra food, therefore I am sharing my things with those who are in need. Now, while certainly that's what Paul's talking about, I wonder if there's something a little bit deeper at play. That what if sharing was not so much about just sharing out of my abundance, the extra things that I have, but what if sharing was really about my life? Because not everybody who walks into these doors has a physical need. Not everybody who comes across your path at your house or your workplace is going to have a a need that you can see. Some of those needs are from the heart. They are broken and lonely and wounded and hurt. Some of those needs are emotional, and they are longing for someone to say, I am so glad you are here so that they can turn into your shoulder and just get lost. I think that Paul is kind of doing a both and. He's talking about relationships and love. He's not just simply talking about giving some things away. And sadly, the church has simply become a redistribution place for things. I don't engage my life enough with people to know who I can give to, so I'll just give it to the church. And no offense, but I get calls all the time for people that say, hey, I've got this old thing. Do you want it? Does the church want it? Uh, no. I don't really need your old placemats, man, or whatever. But we, don't, we want to give them away. Now, that's not to say we won't take it because we'll help get rid of it. But here's the thing. The church just becomes a distribution place because I want to engage my life in relationship with enough people to know people that have deep needs. And not just things, but life. When's the last time you really engaged your neighbors and asked them about their lives? I mean, really engage their neighbors. Sharing life is about more than just saying, I will give you. But it's about saying, I will let you in if you will let me in. I tell this story a lot too, but it's, it's, it's a good one and it's powerful. And it's one that I was reminded of when I was in seminary, I was sitting at this table studying um, and the waitress that was kind of waiting at me, it was at a little diner, came in and said, you know, what are you studying? And we were talking and I ordered and I said, well, I'm at the seminary on the street. And she said, oh, you know, and I started saying, do you ever go to church? And make the story really short. She said, uh, no, I, I, I don't. The church, they don't, they don't want me. And I said, what do you mean they don't want you? She said, the church isn't a place for people like me. And I said, what do you mean? How do you know that? Have you ever been? She's like, oh, I've never, I've never really been. It was, I was a kid last time I went. I said, well, how do you know that the church isn't one? She said, well, my neighbor is the pastor of this church. And it was a big church. And it was the one that I was going to while I was in seminary. And, and she said, is one of the pastors there? And I said, oh, is, is he, I mean, has that not been good? No, she goes, no, he's amazing. He mows my yard every week, and his wife is so kind. They, I'm a single mom, and they come and take care of my kids so I can run errands, and they have been so wonderful to me. I've lived next to them for like 12 years. And I said, that's incredible. That's great. So why would you think the church doesn't want you? And she said, well, in all those 12 years, he's never invited me to come. And here's the thing, not an indictment on that pastor, right? Not at all. His intentions were, I'm going to love my neighbor. I'm going to mow her yard. My wife's going to take care of her kids. We're going to take her cookies. We're going to invite her over to Christmas every single year or whatever that is. But at some point in time, that disconnect between giving my things and my stuff and giving my life just missed. Part of living in community means I'm willing to think differently about the world and about those in need. What if the needs aren't just marked by poverty? What if they're marked by poverty of the soul? How do we begin to think and live differently about that? Who do you know and who knows you? My deep desire for this church, as I talk about biblically-based, generous living and all that, is that we would exist to know and be known. This changes everything. It really does. It changes everything. Because if this is the drive of love, then giving my resources 
my life is an expression of what God did for me. We're going to wrap our time up in worship. And I was going to show you this video, but I'm, not, I'm actually not going to. Just out of time. But the concept that I want you to understand and walk away with is this. My life and my things belong to God, period. Everything I have, my life included, is the Lord's. And now is the time for me to think differently about giving those away. Yeah, you don't have things to give away? Give away your heart. If this church is going to succeed, and I'm not talking about succeed in terms of the worldly picture of what good churches look like. I could care less. But if this church is going to succeed in terms of community, it's going to be because we're vulnerable and we're willing to risk and be involved in each other's lives. And that goes out from this place into your workplaces and into your neighborhoods and into where you live. Now is the time. Now is the time to grab hold of your financial life, to redefine biblically your priorities, and to change the way that you think and live. It's not tomorrow, it's now. In God's economy, love is central, and it changes everything. Let's pray together.